The Real Estate Sessions is brought to you by Relola. The Relola app helps agents leverage their local expertise. Create a beautiful interactive map of everything you love about your community, from businesses to listings to local features. Share it on Facebook and your website. And it's free for all realtors in 2018. Learn more at relola.com. Once I got a taste of it, even though I wasn't making a ton of money, I, I love being able to work for myself. I love being able to you know, pull a, a lever here or twist a dial here in my business and see if I could get a result out of that. What resonated with me the most was, although this wasn't exactly true in those early days, but the harder I worked, the more results I saw. And I knew that definitely wouldn't be the case if I was showing up to a desk job somewhere. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions podcast, where industry leaders share their stories and offer tips and advice for real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Fidelity National Title in Tampa, Florida. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 134 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for sharing with a friend. Um, it's nice to have you know new people join uh, the ranks and and send us nice notes about some of the great guests we're bringing uh, bringing their way. And and today's no exception. I, I head back to uh, the Pacific Northwest, which seems to be a breeding ground for for realtors doing really good things. And, and today it's Phil Greeley with Real Logic Sotheby's International Realty. Uh, Phil, welcome to the podcast. Bill, it's a pleasure and an honor, and to be episode one thirty four. That. It's truly inspiring because I know how hard it is to put together a podcast and stay with it for, I haven't even done it for that long. So uh, you're inspiring me already. So glad <laughs> to be here. Thank you. Yeah. And just let be, what, before we get started, let's talk about that. Let everybody know the name of your podcast and uh, where it's available. Yeah. So pretty much available anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So iTunes, um, Stitcher, uh, we actually just made it onto Spotify. So it's called Rise Seattle. And if you search Rise Seattle podcast in, in any of your listening apps, you'll, you'll likely find it. And um, yeah, so I, co- I co-host it with another real estate agent and buddy of mine. And we just talk about interesting people in Seattle doing interesting things and try to put a, put a, a very micro or hyper local focus to our conversations. Um, and and that's our, our target, target audience there are people that either live in the city and want to maximize their time there um, or people that might be incoming to the city and trying to figure out what, what it's all about. Let's talk about this just for a second. Um, I, I would surmise that you would tell realtors that it's not a bad idea to really dive deep into their community and create this sort of right. content, right? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I don't, I am not the originator of this idea. And I think you don't have to look much further than, you know, a, a name that everybody, every one of your listeners probably knows, which is Gary V, right? He's, he's all about um, adding value to your audience. And, you know, for, for someone like him or someone that has an online business or an author, right? Your audience might be worldwide, but for real estate agents, our, our audience that makes, money for us for the most part with with our day job at least is is local and so what is relevant to them would be local information being the local expert and it's tough for real estate agents to execute on this but like the more niche down you can get the more effective that 
that strategy would become. So it's something that I have um, attempted to weave into my business more and more over the last few years. And the podcast is, is just kind of one way that we try to tackle that. Right. Are you a native of Seattle? Yeah. So I grew up a little bit south of the city in one of the suburbs, um, and which it's kind of rare. I've come to find out lots of transplants uh, in Seattle. But yeah, so I grew up in the region, went to school at the University of Washington and have just stayed here ever since. I, I, I chose a career path where it behooves you to stay in town uh, as long as possible. So don't foresee myself leaving anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, plus, it. I think there's always some value when, uh, if I'm talking with a realtor, it's somebody who remembers when, right? Who's who's seen all the different changes. Right. Uh, and boy, downtown Seattle's changed quite a bit. Even in, um, you know, you're a younger guy, but even in your lifetime, you've seen massive changes down there, right? Oh man, it's totally. It's just exploded, especially the last out of the recession. You know, so like. In 2008, when I launched into real estate, there was Amazon had kind of just announced that they were going to move their campus from uh, Beacon Hill area, which is in the city for sure, but more just on the doorstep of downtown. And they were going to plant in uh, in South Lake Union and in downtown Seattle. And everybody was kind of waiting for this to happen during the darkest days of the recession. And then when they finally did, it just was like a light flipped on and everybody was has been running a hundred miles an hour ever since. Um, so their, their explosive growth is not the only company that has been, has, that has been growing, but they're sort of the, the poster child for what's been taking place here in the city. So lots of development, rising prices for everything, but especially for housing. Um, but along with that comes really great high paying jobs. And so you have all this talent that's flooded the city and, um, for better or for worse, we're we're booming. I think I think we set the record still um, for the most cranes up in the city. I think we're like around 64, 70, 65 to seventy. Wow. Um, cranes that are building, you know, apartments. Um, mainly, it's apartments and office space. But um, it's just kind of unreal. Everybody in our neck of the woods will look back, you know. 20 years from now and say, do you remember, you know, you're talking about the remember wins, but we'll all say, you know, do you remember that stretch from 2010 to 2025? That was insane because it certainly feels that way right now. Yeah. Th- th- this is like a, a corporate spawned growth, but there's been a huge relocation. I mean, I, how many Californians relocated up to Seattle from like 1980 to 2000? I mean, <laughs> there was a big, a big exodus of people that were leaving California heading your way, right? Totally. Yeah. Totally. And well, you know, you think of, you think of not only jobs, but as you know, as um, depending on your viewpoints on if this is reality or not, but like there's climate refugees is a common phrase we hear up here. So as the Southwest gets hotter and hotter more year round, um, we see people uh, uh, transplanting for that reason. And um, I think last count I saw we're issuing it's, they kind of measure it. I don't know if, if you've heard of this or if your listeners have heard of this, but um, a lot of times cities will measure how many new driver's licenses they issue um, okay. or counties will, will measure that rather. And so I think last it's upwards of around 200 per day um, that King County is issuing. Uh, and so King County, you know, Seattle's in the middle of King County. Um, and so it's just, 
in most of those, NAR, another little tidbit for listeners, uh, National Association of Realtors can track where a lot of those transplants are coming from. And for us in our region, it's, it's California and Texas is, are always leading. Yeah, people leaving the sunshine to go to the gray, but with intention, <laughs> for, on purpose, right? That's very interesting. Right. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Uh, let me ask you a question about Seattle in general. For those of us who have just visited it, but never lived there, it has this reputation of having, a, it's kind of the, you know, it's the grunge capital from the 90s. It's a lot of hipsters. It's a lot of tech. Is that fair or is that kind of justified? It's No, that's totally accurate. I would say it's deeper than like just the grunge and the tech. It's, um, in fact, if, if uh, the first episode of, of our Rise Seattle podcast, we interviewed uh, an 85-year-old Hall of Fame disc jockey. He was the tour manager for Jimi Hendrix and, um, and Elvis in his later years. He, so he has this huge perspective. He was from the region, uh, was a major name and force and player um, when it came to music in the Seattle region. And so here's our first interview. And he sort of opened my eyes to this idea of that it's not all of those things, right? The grunge, the tech, you know, think about Boeing who are, you know, building um, these, you know, the world's airplanes. Right. It sort of comes from this idea of, and even from the people that founded the city, it's, it's sort of this mindset of independence, um, innovation, and like, we're going to be out here in, what people, you know, term as Southeast Alaska, right? Out in the middle of nowhere at the, in the corner of the country. And we're going to do our own thing. And we're going to like, we don't care what you think about it. And we're going to do it really well. And so I think you see that, you know, from all of the, all of the major players like Microsoft and Amazon, at least in the early days, it kind of came from this like disruption mindset and this idea that like, we're going to, we're going to break the system and, and do our, do it our own way. And so, you know, from, Nirvana to to Amazon. I think that's kind of what you that's the feeling that you get of people that are from here, at least. It's almost like a sense of like autonomy and entrepreneurship kind of coming together, right? Because like you said, you're stuck in the this corner of the country where you're doing your own thing. I love it. It's it's a uh, very right. cool. And, and it I, I know I said this at the opening, but it I it's amazing how many realtors and you know all these people that have been on the podcast. Um, that are just yeah. really doing great stuff, whether it's Ann or, or Marguerite or, or you or Nick Crowder. Well, he's down in Portland, but you know, the, that Pacific Northwest just has some really cool stuff going on. So that's, that's awesome. But I'll ask you a question. Was 15 um, year old Phil thinking he was going to be a realtor? <laughs> no, not whatsoever. <laughs> I, um, so 15 year old Phil would have been kind of freshman, sophomore in high school. You know, when, Back then, and even in my college days, I I was sort of stuck in this mindset that you had to be, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a fireman. I just thought of, I didn't realize all of the things that we could, uh, business certainly wasn't on my radar, but I just, you know, I kind of got stuck in the the rut of what traditionally we think of as occupations. And I was good at, I was good at writing and reading and writing was my, you know, it was, it came natural to me. And so I had an influential teacher. I was good at reading and writing and I thought, okay, this is a career path, right? Like I can be a, I could be a high school English teacher. And so I, um, 
at, at the University of Washington, that's what I pursued. And I think that was kind of my thought in high school, even though I might not have said that, that this was kind of a, an, an interest to me. So that's what I pursued in college. Um, and so I got my English degree, I got my master's in teaching, and I was, I did my student teaching, and I was all set to be a teacher. But when the recession, you know, I was graduating around the end of 06, and so the recession hadn't really set in, but districts were already kind of tightening their belt a bit. And or maybe I was a terrible candidate, I'm not sure, but I didn't get hired for that first first round, that first school year that I could have. And so that was where I just had to reset and rethink about what I was going to do. Um, but no, real estate was certainly not on my radar at all until I had that reset and, and kind of at the ripe age of, you know, 23 was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. I have to go back to the Huskies just for a moment. Uh, I'm assuming you're a sports yeah. fan, right? <laughs> Love it. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, to to chat with you, I stepped out of a little NCAA tournament watching. Oh so my! That, awesome. that shows you how much I value you, Bill. <laughs> well, uh, and I have it up on my computer as we're talking next to my notes for the podcast. So, yeah, um, I had I had Rhode Island. I feel good about that one. I'm a Pac-12 guy myself, right? Uh, lived, lived in Phoenix. My son went to ASU. Um, tell me, are the Huskies going to be competing in the North next year again? It seems like every year, right? It's Stanford and Washington. Yeah. It's just you two battling it out every year. Every now and then, Oregon State or Oregon back in the, the you know, back in the day was what, 10 years ago when they were uh, dominant. But is it the same thing? UW's looking good? Well, my, how times have changed for you to, to hear you say that because it, it was only a few years ago that we were not in that conversation. That's true. Um, yeah, you know, I think so two years after I graduated college, so they were terrible. Um, most of my college years and you know in 2008 they didn't win a single game and so we thought we'd never get out of that period of time but uh with chris peterson yeah he's got he's got the right magic he's got the magic touch right and so he um he runs a good program and i think for the foreseeable future we'll always be in the playoff conversation pretty much every year unless injuries happen so we're excited for next year for sure seahawks yeah. on the other hand we're they're in a rebuilding mode, so we're all a little depressed about that. But yeah, those when those windows close, it's painful. Um, I, I experienced yeah. that in 1983 when uh, the Dan Fouts and John Jefferson Chargers. Uh, I don't think you were born yet. Um, when uh, when they were going through their 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 window closed, right? They they made uh, two AFC Championship games, didn't win either one, uh, and it's just part of life. It's cyclical in the NFL and. Uh, you had a great run and you got a Super Bowl, so you can't be too upset. Totally. Yeah. Well, Seattle at its core, with all the tech, I think at its core is a blue collar town. Yeah. And so football is a big deal around here. So we're excited uh, to have some teams in, in the in the talk. Yeah. Let's talk about real estate then. You start uh, in 2008. Is that the right year I've got here? Yeah, actually March of 2008. So as of the moment we're talking, I'm at my 10-year mark. Wow. And... Uh, you did you started with Windermere, right? Which is um, Windermere kind of spread out around the the West Coast. I know we had a Windermere operation moved into Phoenix back in like about ten years ago, but they really are they were yeah. born and bred up up in the Northwest, right? Totally, yeah. yeah. Seattle Seattle company for sure, but um, yeah, I describe them as regional. They're up and down the West Coast, and they've you know they've spread to a few other states as well. But for the most part, they're 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 a dominant player in the Seattle market. 
So talk to me about starting in real estate at the beginning of the dark days. Now, it, it, you weren't you weren't Arizona or Florida or Texas up there, but still, it had there had to be it had to be a rough start. Totally. So yeah. between two between the peak and you know roughly 2011 or so, um, the the market dropped around 30 percent, kind of on average. Um, prices did at least, and so. Yeah, as a 24, 25-year-old starting out, I was naive to some of those larger economic forces. I think if I had read more or understood what I was reading, I might have been more nervous to get into into the um, into the business. You know, in hindsight, I still would have done it. I just would have been a little bit smarter with with how I went about um, crafting and building my business. But you know, my first nine months, um, I sold one home. Mm. And I know everybody has a different start, but for me, it was sort of like I was young. My my friends, my immediate sphere were just barely able to buy a home and add on top of that all this economic anxiety where people that could, in theory, do something, everyone was paralyzed for a couple of years while they we figured it all out. So, yeah, there was business happening. Um, it just took me a while to figure out how to operate within all of that. Um, it was very easy to work with buyers at that time. So if you could find a qualified buyer, it was, you know, there's multiple options for them to pick from. You can negotiate the heck out of that transaction and have big wins for them. But it was, it was tough sledding. So the first, yeah, the first kind of nine month period, I'm kind of, I, I base all of this based on what my split all over. So the first nine months I sold one home and then the next two full kind of calendar years, I um, I sold seven homes each in each of those years. So like my first three years, I'm still only sitting at 15 transactions. Um, I think at that point in time, I just wasn't, I was newly married. I think I didn't have a ton of overhead. My wife worked, we were able to make it all happen. And what kept me going was sort of this idea that I I was building something and I was you know, I could see the, I could see the future in that if I could stick this out and kind of continue to put transaction, just help people one after the other, right? The more people I could help, then eventually that would build a workable database and a workable business, book of business that would, would sustain. But it was, yeah, it was, I mean, I think it was kind of scary at that point. I, it was hard to figure out when it, when it would all end. Right. And so, for for someone who was, as you mentioned, as a young a young man, we're convinced you had to go work for somebody to be working yeah. for yourself. Did you? It, it sounds like you were all in on that. That you said, you know what, this this does feel better, even though it's I might be, um, it's a slow build, but you were happy to be a startup, right? An entrepreneur doing your own thing. Yeah, and I didn't. That wasn't in my family bloodline entrepreneurship entrepreneurship um my grandfather had his own uh his own uh cpa firm that was just kind of a small little operation um or, you know not not a multi it didn't have a lot of people but he had employees and he, he had his own business um but it wasn't really how i was raised necessarily which is no knock on my parents it's just like they that wasn't their that wasn't their thing necessarily and so um once I got a taste of it, even though I wasn't making a ton of money, I, I love being able to work for myself. I love being able to 
you know, pull a, a lever here or twist a dial here in my business and see if I could get a result out of that. I think what resonated with me the most was, although this wasn't exactly true in those early days, but the harder I worked, the more results I saw. And I knew that definitely wouldn't be the case if I was showing up to a desk job somewhere. So yeah, it was, it's exciting. It's a drug um, to, to be entrepreneurship is a drug to me to it's an adrenaline rush and yeah. I love it. You know, we talked about the podcast earlier. You also, um, in your, your business really attack local content, you know, as a lead generation tool. When did you realize mm-hmm. that that was really important? Way too late. Um, <laughs> when a I common started, response. Yeah. 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 When I started in the business, I, my, uh, my manager was just starting a new agent training program and she was using the ninja selling system. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am. Yep. Okay. And that was, and it still is a way I recommend new agents start because it has a system you follow. It talks, especially if you don't have any sales experience, it talks about how to build a referral based um, business. And ultimately like with all the content I create, I would still say at the heart of it is relationships. Um, and the, the content is sort of the, the cherry on top, in my opinion. Um, but all that, that ninja selling system is, is at its core, just old school referral marketing, right? You add people to your database, you stay in touch with them through a variety of different tactics and you take care of your people. I'm using air quotes here on a podcast, but you know, you take care of the people that are in your database and over time, when there's a buying or selling decision, you're going to be top of mind. And that was sort of how I started. But the tactics within that are like the, not even necessarily the tactics that um, Ninja would teach, but, you know, staying top of mind via postcards and, um, you know, with pop buys to people's homes and all of that kind of classic real estate stuff, um, which works. But what I was, I still kick myself all the time. You know, when I started in 2008, YouTube as an example was just a couple years old mm-hmm. and think about the, the untapped, it was just like a wide open playing field at that point in time. And so those are, you know, con- creating video content and creating especially hyper local content just wasn't even a, a consideration for me. Um, until about 2014, 15, I would say 15 for sure. And that was sort of where the light bulb went off for me. Um, and I, it was largely in part, I, even though I had known about Inman News and the Inman organization, um, I started reading it more faithfully, um, connected with some of the, some of the people that were in that in crowds, the Marguerites and Anns of the world who are kind of in our uh, a city south of us in Tacoma. So they're local to, to our region. And, um, and just observing what they did and seeing how it was different. And where it was different is that it was actually, inter- they were providing interesting info to their, to the world, right? It wasn't, it was, you never really saw mention about interest rates or how to, stage your home. I guess they do have a video about staging your home, but like it, it would just wasn't like real estatey sales stuff that you see from everybody. And that it was just different. 
and so that that point where I said, okay, I don't know how I'm going to put my own spin on it, but I have to do, I have to create content like this. And so that was, that was around 2015 and it's just all sort of layered from there. Is this uh, about the same time that you, you make the decision to leave Windermere? So yeah, shortly after I made that decision. So that was around 2016, uh, end of 2016. And for me, I, I was at a place where uh, there was kind of a uh, there was a change in leadership at my office, and that didn't necessarily bother me one way or the other. But what it did make me do for myself was sort of lift my head and look around and say, "Okay, the ownership at this office didn't like the direction things were going. Well, Phil, what would you do if you were in charge?" And so I sort of put a lot of mental energy into thinking. Okay, if I ran an office, you know, the, the, one of the classic ninja lines is if you could wave a magic wand and have whatever you wanted, what would you, what, what would the office look like? And so I put a bunch of stuff down on paper and I started in my head going down this rabbit trail of, okay, I'm going to own, start and own a boutique brokerage and we're going to do things differently and we're going to have hyper local content. We're going to target, you know, the tech crowd. And it was around that time that I went to an, kind of an all company networking event hosted by Real Logic Sotheby's, which is my company. And so they were hosting an event for agents from any company to just come and hear actually from a third party uh, vendor, uh, concierge auctions. I don't know if you've heard of that company. Um, it was just a co-branded event to get together, talk about luxury real estate and have a glass of wine. Well, at that event, I ran into the vice president of development for the, from Real Logic Sotheby's and, I don't know what, for some reason I could just tell she was down to earth. And so I was sort of casting my vision about what I wanted from a company. And I started peppering her with questions of, you know, how are you tackling the young demographic and how are you, you know, how are you reaching people with local content and things like that. And she just started laughing and said, okay, we need to go get coffee. Well then, you know, one thing leads to another and it, a lot of the things that I had written down on that piece of paper that I would want in a company, um, the local Sotheby's affiliate was, was doing. And so it just, you know, it just became a no brainer that that was the perfect fit for me. And I just really haven't looked back since. I, I think when it comes to deciding where agents hang their hat, lots of different things will get thrown around about, um, what they provide you or what your split is or, you know, the brand and this and that. But I think ultimately it comes down to who the leadership is and what direction are they pointing the company and, and, and thereby pointing the agents. And so Dean and Stacy Jones who own, own our company are just kind of second to none and super dynamic and would be, um, would be great people for you to talk to on the show as well. But, um, ultimately they're just so inspiring and encouraging for what each of their agents wants to do that it's like you wake up fired up to go into the office. So writing down Dean and Stacy Jones. Okay. Got that. Um, that's, you know, I, obviously I do some research when I have a, a guest come on the show and I, I want to talk about your website, uh, philgreeley.com. And, uh, I, the word I use for your website is, uh, stunning. And that's, I don't use that word very, um, lightly, 
by the way, I've shared it with a bunch of realtors in Florida. So I'm going to apologize to you up front if a bunch of Florida realtors start popping things up that, you know, have a look and feel that was inspired by your site. But I want you to describe um, really the process of how you came to what you have now, because it does not look like a regular real estate website. You you agree with that, right? You know, I I don't. I, I think I do. Well, first, just thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate it. All those agents in Florida are now getting retargeted on Facebook and all over the internet. So awesome. hopefully they don't mind that. Awesome. So when I was with Windermere, uh, they provided, you know, I paid for it, I guess, through my, my agent split. But essentially, we got a free website. Um, in the later years, I was there as a WordPress-based thing with, that was a, te- you know, you could pick one of the five templates and you could modify the content, but not really the look and feel. And I did that because it was free, you know, in my early years, I wasn't making any money. And so it just became one of those things where I knew it needed attention, but I just hadn't devoted myself fully to the a new website. And then when I made the transition to Sotheby's, I knew I needed to overhaul it. And I was starting that process of overhauling it when my buddy, my co-host of the podcast, Tyler Jones, was really started hammering home this idea of um, creating a framework uh, for your sort of your theory or your um, motivation for the website. So we did this, we went through this framework and I'll tell you about it in a second, but we went through this framework for the podcast and the podcast website. And he, he was, you know, saying once I did that, once I did that for the podcast, I knew this was a, a similar process I needed to take my own website through. So the the framework is called StoryBrand, and I totally credit Tyler for bringing this to my attention. But um, it, in large part, takes a brand through um, the the epic journey of a hero, right? So we have a we have a person with a problem, and that causes internal and external conflict. Um, the, a great example is Luke Skywalker, right? Like he um, he has this conflict of um, now. Even though I'm a Star Wars fan, I can't exactly pinpoint his conflict. But he he's like he doesn't know if he can be a Jedi, right? He has this moment of like, do I have what it takes to, to be um, the person that I need to be to defeat the dark side? Well, he meets his um, he meets his guide. So every hero has a guide. So in his case, he had Obi-Wan Kenobi, he had Yoda, and they provided a plan for the hero to overcome his obstacle, right? Yep. And and so if we take our brands through that idea, I think as agents, especially as real estate agents, we always think of ourselves as the hero. We're the hero in all of our marketing. I'm the five-star agent. I've sold 100 homes. You know, it's all about us. But in reality, it's our clients who should be positioned as the hero in our marketing because it's their story, it's their home. And we truly act as the guide to help them figure out how to make that happen. And so it's a, it's a totally different, it's a subtle but totally different way to approach the copy on your website, how the website's laid out, et cetera, et cetera. So I spent about two or three months kind of brainstorming how my brand fit into that framework. And then I dumped it all on my graphic designer, which I think she told me made it super easy for her to come up with the layout of the website. And um, she just created a very beautiful thing with the info that I wanted to convey. Um, 
so yes, like the goal is to sort of not not have a bazillion links about I'm the expert on every type of property and here are all the different you know neighborhoods that you could possibly live in. It's just simply very simple messaging of you know I help people buy and sell real estate. Here's how to start. And um, I think I don't know I don't know if you would say the calls to action on there are pretty pretty clear. Very clear. Yep. So so yeah. I, I have a question. So really, there's only. Yeah. On May 4th, you know, that's a big day for Star Wars freaks. Like, you know, but on May 4th, can, can you change start the process to the process you must start? <laughs> you right? Like, I you totally know, should. that'd be awesome, right? For one day. I'm just saying for that Star Wars geek that lands on your site, they would love that. So, um, no, I like. Well, you know, it's funny. I created a Star Wars video um, to, to sort of, it was an idea I had where instead of, instead of using you know selling a, a beautiful house to models or something which would be the cliche thing you know a real estate agent would do i wanted to um i had this idea that it would be fun to sell a house to a stormtrooper and that mushroomed into a family of stormtroopers and so on my youtube channel it's on my website too but um there's a three minute video i shot with um where i sell i sell a, a family of stormtroopers a house so we had fun with that, but I've kind of, all of a sudden I'm now positioning myself as Mr. Star Wars guy. I'm, I'm sure I'm a fan, but I'm not a super fan. Right. Right. All, uh, by the way, I will probably link to the, uh, in the show notes, we'll link to that video so everyone can see it. Um, let's, yeah. let's talk about, um, the content that goes on that site. How much time do you spend on that content? Um, are you able to outsource any of it? Is it all you, I mean, that English, you know, major background helps a lot with the copywriting, I'm sure. Um, but how do you, yeah. Have, you know, okay. So all the content was based, all the, um, let's just say the fixed copy on the website mm -hmm. I wrote, but that was sort of a one-time thing and, you know, we'll modify it every now and then, but really don't touch any of that. The blog content I do have help with. So I outsourced that to a, a um, digital marketing firm. Um, they're actually based out of Denver, Sunnyside social, and they're fantastic to work with. Um, they can do everything from write content for you and post it everywhere to, you know, they could run your social channels for you as well. I, I don't have them do that just because I want to be me on online. Mm -hmm. um, so they do the, they do the written content for me. Um, we, for the, I know you're asking about my web, my philgreeley.com website, but I have a few other spots that are getting content as well. So the, the podcast, Tyler and I record that. We do it in a studio um, with a sound engineer. And then once we're done, she's making it, she's editing the, the audio and, and making that sound good. We send that file off to uh, a different copywriter and who's remote and she writes our show notes for us. So sometimes we're posting on the website, but like once we record the episode, it's pretty much for the most part, hands off. Um, aside from promoting it on social, the show notes for the podcast for you, very detailed, very important because there's that search component you're really playing hard for, right? You need to, you have the podcast itself, but you know, the way that you break down, you know, almost, um, section by section, how the interview went or, or the, sh the, the, the actual episode went has a kind of an SEO play for you, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that's not something we optimize well, you know, SEO, but we have 
we have the comprehensive show notes there. And so, you know, in future episodes, we can, you know, just like in this episode, you know, we're talking about websites, we're talking about videos. And then now you have a, you know, that your faithful listeners have a spot they can go to see all of that stuff that you're going to link up for them. Right. So it's, it's almost, it's almost in addition to SEO, just a convenience and added value to the, to the audience. Cool. Um, last thing I mentioned, uh, I created a, a, a school guide. And so that is something I have had and continue to have a lot of help with. Um, and it's sort of a monster I've created that I don't exactly know where I'm going to go with, uh, at this point, but, um, in every big city, uh, there are a lot, you have big school districts, right? And you have lots of schools. So you have over a hundred public schools and many more private schools. And with a lot of new coming, incoming transplants, I, I recognized, especially as a real estate agent, that for people just didn't even know where to begin in the search process for a school and schools and real estate are so closely tied together with, you know, where people decide to buy home values. Right. And mm -hmm. so I thought I just wanted to create something that would be first and foremost a resource and that for people and then also to have breadcrumbs back to my business. So the seattleschoolguide.com is another place where I'm creating a lot of content. I have a, a page for every public every school in Seattle, uh, over 100 public schools and 30 to 40 private schools. Wow. And um that was a gargantuan effort to get data on there that isn't really searchable anywhere else. Um, and I wanted it to be less based on test scores, which a lot of the other rating, the big rating sites that we're all familiar with, they, they're mainly using an algorithm that goes off of like publicly available info, which the big, the big driving factor in that would be test scores. And so I wanted something different. Um, and also, uh, that was helpful. And so I think it, I, what people will see when they go there is a good starting place, but I'm trying to figure out how to add more helpful content on there. Um, but I definitely have help with that. So the, I think the problem and maybe the root of your question is that like, I'm, even though I have some people writing blog articles and helping me with collecting data for the school guide, I'm still the quarterback of all of that. And you know, I think to be honest, like not everything is perfect in, uh, in my business. And that's kind of one where it feels overwhelming at times. And so, um, I have these cool assets now that I need to figure out how to optimize, but I also probably need to get to a place where I can find the right person to just like that understands it and fully hand it off with less, uh, less hands-on from me. So. Yeah, that's and that's obviously coming down the road for you. You're also still a very young man, so you're you're building <laughs> you're building uh, your your empire. We'll call it as as you as you move along. So let me let me I, I, right. I wrap this up here. I've had you well over the half hour, but I want I have to ask you this question because I've got the local expert on Seattle. I'm just going to call you that. Um, I want three things that I can do that are not touristy. Three things I should see or do in Seattle next time I'm there. Good question. All right. Well, I think um, this might be bordering on touristy, but uh, it's totally worth doing. I do it um, as much as I've done it at least every summer for the last couple of summers. Go paddle boarding in Lake Union. Ooh. So Lake Union is the lake right in the middle of the city. It's just north of downtown. But like if you look at a map, it's smack in the middle of, of Seattle. 
And it's a perspective you don't really get of the city very often. Um, you're surrounded by water and surrounded by skyscrapers. And it just is quiet out there. You see the float planes flying over you. Um, it's really fun. And the lake's pretty warm and, and it's good. So if you're there in the warm weather, you should go paddleboarding in Lake Union. All right. The touristy version of that is renting an electric boat. So don't do that. <laughs> go paddleboarding. Okay. Um, the, okay, so Magnol, uh, Discovery Park in the in the magnolia neighborhood is uh a really big i think it might be the largest park in the city it has trails uh, throughout the trees it has waterfront on the puget sound so it's a great spot to just go feel like you're totally in the northwest without driving all the way out to mount rainier as an example which you could do but that's going to be a an all-day trip so you could do you could do one and a half to two hours in discovery park and feel get your Get your evergreen tree uh, Instagram shots. Okay. And then, um, and then you got to go to Westward for oysters and champagne. So Westward is a restaurant that is on the shores of Lake Union, on the north end of the lake. It stares straight south at the city skyline, and you can sit out in an Adirondack chair with a fire pit, and they bring you um, all types of food, but oysters and champagne typically pair well. So, wow. Um, Beautiful. Those are my three things. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, uh, we'll we'll try and link to all those too. We don't want to give them all away, but <laughs> that's great. Uh, <laughs> Phil, you've uh, you really, I really appreciate your time. I'm going to wrap up with the same question I've asked every single previous guest since Jay Thompson of Zillow. Speaking of Seattle, was my first guest. Nice. Uh, I knew Jay very well in Phoenix before he uh, he he relocated to Seattle. Um, and that's what what's. If you could just give one piece of advice to an agent just getting started in the business, what would it be? Man, that's a good one. It's actually timely because I just hired sort of my first assistant slash associate agent uh, this week. So I feel like I'm giving a lot of those new agent tips out. You know, I think I think new agents face this problem of where they got they have to drink from a fire hose and 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 learning how to do business. And then also doing business to make money. And I feel like it's really easy to lose. Um, you try to fit in the box that you think is going to make you successful. Um, and so as much as you can, I think this is not an easy thing to do. But where I feel like I kind of have hit my stride is just being myself. And the more that I can let, basically let my personality shine through kind of like the um the the marketing and the things that we have to do to to generate business that's where that's what resonates with with other humans which is who you're working with and so um and i think part of that is once you are able to like fully be yourself in the business then you can then you can go down and take your business down the avenue that makes most sense to you and jives most with you so well, like I know you and I are big advocates of content marketing. Like some people love to door knock, right? And so that's a viable option still, but you have to be, you have to know who you are and if that's a good fit for you. So amidst all of the craziness of starting, starting in the business, I would say that if you can just truly be yourself and identify what makes, uh, kind of makes you happy when it comes to growing a business and marketing and pursue those things and just toss away the rest. Phil, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? 
Good question. So I, I mean, if you Google Phil Greeley Seattle, you'll probably find all, all of my different channels. Um, my email, I'm happy to give out. So it's phil, P-H-I-L dot G-R-E-E-L-Y at R-S-I-R dot com. Real Logic Sotheby's International Realty dot com. So that would be the fastest way. Phil, thank you once again for, for your time today. Uh, I know it's you're busy and uh, I appreciate any time I can get from people that are doing great things. And uh, hopefully I'll see you at an Inman event soon. I know you've talked about it. Maybe San Francisco in July? I'm thinking about it. I'm going to have a, uh, my third child is arriving in June. So we'll see how, uh, see how that plays out. I meant, I I like meant to go. July 2019. I'm sorry. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't tell my wife that I'm going. But. All right. Well, th- thank, thanks again for, for, uh, for all of your time and, and uh, the wonderful information. Thanks, Bill. It's been fun.